Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight we have Rich Barnes as our guest, who's got a very interesting and very good story for everybody to listen to. Welcome, Rich Barnes. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it very much. My pleasure. So, Rich, um, I understand that 2006, on November 3rd, something exceptional happened in your life. Do you want to, would you like to explain that to us? Sure. Um, it was November 3rd, 2006. It was a very freeing moment for me after my addictions and, and alcoholism took control of me for 28 years. And um, uh, that night, it was probably two in the morning. Uh, I just really, for the first time in my life, didn't want to live with it any longer. Uh, and I was going to do something about it. And um, that was my first real day. The next day when I woke up from uh, this, these thoughts of suicide that um, I felt so free. Um, and November 4th, 2006 was the first, my first day of, of, of entering my recovery. And I look back at that November 3rd of 2006, uh, 16 and a half years ago, and, and, and realize with clarity how desperate I was and how alone I felt and how sad and depressed I was and how deep in my addictions and alcoholism I was. Um, you know, I, 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 I prayed to God for the first time on that night, it was again, it was two, two or three o'clock in the morning. And I prayed to God to, as I was high on drugs and drunk on alcohol and NyQuil and Benadryls and all that stuff, I prayed to God to either either take me away fast um, or help me. And here I am 16 and a half years later, still living and, and trying to just spread the, the message of hope to anybody who will listen, anybody who has an open heart and open mind and open ears that will listen to that there is there is hope that there is a, a, another way to live besides alcohol and drugs. So, November third, two thousand six, was probably the rebirth of, of the person who you're speaking to right now, um, and it was the best day of my life. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, what was life like, and how did you start on drugs in the beginning? We you know twenty eight years prior to that. That's a long time. <clears throat> Not even, how, long did you, time. how did you how did you survive and maintain a job and get money and everything? Well, I started drinking when I was 10 and, you know, just experimentation. I saw my mom drink and my father drink. And, um, you know, my, my parents got divorced when I was about seven and, you know, three years went by. I lived with my mom and my two sisters. So I was kind of became the man of the house per se. And again, I saw my mom and dad drinking down in my basement. We had a full, a bar full of alcohol. And I never had it. You know, I, again, I saw the drink and I saw what I really saw is them become happy. I, become, I, I saw them smile. And here I am again, I'm a, I'm a 10 year old boy, no father figure in my life per se. I mean, you know, I saw him once in a while, but um, you know, I didn't have that dad and son communi communication or, or relationship really that a uh, dad that was living in the house would have with his son. And, you know, at, at 10 years old, I, I took that first drink and I, I remember it vividly because it was Bacardi. I, I put it in a glass and I smelt it and I, I took a sip of it and, it's, and literally almost came up. It was going down like razor blades. But, you know, after the after effects of that, that pain that I was going through of drinking it were, was like being happy it was it, this, this euphoria set in. And I really liked it because it, it, I, I thought, and again, in hindsight, I thought at 10 years old, it was, ma it was just masking my pain. And But at 10 years old, I thought it was good. And, it, you know, I wasn't pain, in, in emotional pain anymore from my dad not being there or anything like that. And, you know, that, that progressed, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. I was still drinking that alcohol down in my bar. And, I mean, there was a lot of it. And, again, I, you know, at 10 years old, when I took that first sip of alcohol, I, I didn't know it but I became an alcoholic and uh, you know, 12, 13 years old, I started getting into trouble. Uh, and, and, you know, 
they say, you know, alcohol makes you feel good. And these, these jackpots that I was having, like I got expelled from my uh, middle school at eighth grade with three weeks left of school because I was, I was troubled. And, you know, I got, um, I got arrested for stealing a jacket. These troubles came into my life as the alcoholism progressed. And again, not knowing it. And, you know, I, I've always had jobs. You, you questioned about jobs. How did I support my, my life? And so if I've always had jobs to start off with, you know, I, I'd hustle around the neighborhoods. Um, I would rake leaves and shovel driveways, all that stuff for money. And I would actually, when I depleted the bar in my house, and my mother never went down there, so I filled them all. Again, manipulation came into my life. I'd fill them all with water or colored water because my mother never drank and she wouldn't know. But I, I had a, um, a person who lived in my neighborhood buy me alcohol. I would ask him to buy me alcohol. And, and again, here I am, 14, 15 years old. Um, I'm a full-blown alcoholic. And I'm drinking probably three, four times a week. And just, again, to numb that pain of my life. And, and you know, in hindsight, again, as a, as a child and as a troubled child, I never had the courage to actually raise my hand or reach out that big hand and say, you know something, I don't think I'm, what I'm doing is right. I don't think what I'm doing is right. But because alcohol masked that, that feeling of doing the right thing. And it also allowed me to think I was doing the right thing. And what alcoholism is, Tony, is basically it's a hand that strokes your arm and tells you that you're okay. And, and as it progresses, as, as, as you lose things, as your grades fall, as your activities go away, like your sports, and you, you decline in your abilities and all those things. Now, the claws of that hand come out and it's in you, it, the talons, and it has you in its grips. And now, you, you know, it's part of life. And, and my life was revolving around alcohol. I would, um, you know, I, would, I was drinking every day. I'd drink at school. I would uh, have vodka nips or whatever I had around my in my locker, you know, back in the eighties, they didn't check that stuff. You know, um, I had a couple of jackpots and I got arrested. Uh, my father was a police officer in my hometown. So unfortunately, and I would have done the same thing with my child. I got out of a lot of trouble, uh, because of my father being a police officer. And, and that, what that did, that had a very, very negative impact on my life because what it did is it enabled me to progressively alcoholism is progressive in nature and it takes and takes and takes what it did Tony is it progressively made me worse uh, made me a, a bigger alcoholic it allowed me to not see the trouble with the jackpots of the arrest of really signs that I had a problem because I'd get off and I would start taking that for granted well if I get arrested you know, my father will get off get me off if I get arrested of drunk driving my father will get me off and those jackpots did happen um, so senior in high school, I got kicked off my high school hockey team because of the troubles I was getting in, detentions, um, you know, talking back to teachers, uh, stealing, just these bad, bad behaviors that, again, I can look in hindsight right now and, and, and believe because of the person I am now that there were all the bad behaviors that I portrayed as a young child were definitely fueled by the alcoholism that I had uh, and and not wanting to be honest with not only anybody else, but with myself. And then at, it, it, it's 17. So at 17 years old, here I am seven years an alcoholic, seven years and losing so many things. I lost my childhood and didn't even know it. At 17, one of my, um, one of my friends was out, we were out one night driving around and, you know, I, I had a van, it was a party van and um, he introduced me to cocaine. And I asked him, I said, listen, you know, what's this going to, if I do this, what's it going to do for me? He says, oh my goodness, Rich, it's going to make you feel so good. It's going to go into, uh, it's going to make you stay up longer. It's going to make you feel invincible. It's going to, you know, you're going to talk to more girls. You're just going to have a great time. And, you know, as a, as again, as a naive 17 year old boy, I said, great, let's do it. And uh, never knowing that taking that first line of cocaine would rob me of the next 21 years of my life and spend over a million dollars on it and, and have all these jackpots in my life where I, you know, just awful things would happen to me. And, you know, and that, what, what he told me was what he thought would happen, that I would feel great, invincible and all these things. But unfortunately he didn't know he was lying because again, it was still 21 years of my life. 
uh, it would bring me to my knees in, in, in coupled with the alcoholism, uh, my life would be going nowhere. And, you know, all these people would look at me and, and think negative thoughts of me and I would get, I would get infuriated, but they were all true. And again, those thoughts of other people were masked by my blindness of, of who I really was and who I, who I am now, because here I am 17. When I took that first line of cocaine, I instantly became an addict. And again, those, um, those, the alcoholism, the, the addiction, they took off. You know, I, I went to college. I started going to college at a uh, community college in my area. And I, and I basically flunked out of that. And I said, you know something, forget this. I'm, and I was lured into the car business. I was going to be a car salesman and I would wear a suit and tie. And, and all of a sudden the, my, my, I, I would develop this in, insecurity, this inferiority complex where I would hide and, and I would mask I mean, we all know Robin Williams, what he did. And he, he unfortunately committed suicide and everybody thought he was the happiest guy in the world. But then this was me. I would mask everything with a smile, a joke. And, and I was so, I felt so insecure on my own skin. Uh, and I didn't know it, but here I am. I want to be a car salesman and they gave me a free car to use. And I would have a suit and a tie and I'd make all this money. And, 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 you know, that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted power. I wanted money. I wanted security. I wanted to look good all because alcoholism and addiction, the alcohol and the drugs took away all the wonderful things like happiness, joy, integrity, ethical values, all these, all these wonderful things were being taken away by or stripped from me. And again, I didn't know it because alcoholism and addiction, if you, I'm going to, I'm going to say it's a disease and I'm going to back the American medical association because they're a lot smarter than me. And I deem it is, is a progressive disease. It's a brain disorder that keeps taking and taking and taking and doesn't allow you to see the, the carnage that you're leaving behind. And I got, you know, arrested by the time 17, 18, 19 years old came around. I lost my college education. Uh, we've been arrested probably maybe a dozen times of drunk driving and theft and, and just, Troubled, troubled, troubled person. Um, you know, 21, 22 years old, I was introduced to crack cocaine. I started smoking crack cocaine. Uh, but and here I am again, I'm in the car business. I'm making a lot of money and a lot of money back then for a, a 20, 21 year old kid was seventy, eighty thousand dollars And, you know, I was uh, renting a home and it was a party home and we just party all, all night long. And, uh, and my addictions now are really, really inhibiting me from doing anything constructive in my life, making anything of myself. I live day to day. You know, sometimes I'll be up for two or three days without eating anything, without a shower or anything and just keep going on and, and just living my life to what I thought was the right way to live. And when in reality, I was very, very sick. Um, so to answer your question, how did I how do I survive with money and so forth? I was what's called a functioning alcoholic, a functioning addict where I would just go to work. I would make the best of my day uh, as I thought I could. Uh, I'd be drinking during the day. Like every morning, Tony, I wake up um, in the morning. I wake up around seven, eight o'clock in the morning, I'd say seven o'clock in the morning. I'd go to work. I'd eat all, eat all I could because I didn't eat for maybe 24 to 36 hours. And then I would, um, you know, my dealer would call me around 12, one o'clock in the afternoon. I'd get cocaine. And, and, and every morning before prior to doing that, I would always say, you know, something, I'm not doing this again today. I'm not doing it because I really believe, and I really believe that in my heart of hearts, which I really didn't have a heart back then, but I believe that when I told myself I wasn't going to do it, I wasn't going to do it. And then 12 or one o'clock, after I feel a little bit better. My dealer would call me and say, hey, listen, I'll meet you so-and-so. I'll meet you here and there. I'm like, oh, all right. And, uh, and, and you know, not in even knowing it, but my my life just was a revolving around alcohol and drugs. And and every night I'd be crying to myself, Tony, uh, telling myself, I can't believe I'm doing this. Why did I do this again? Crying. I hate this. And I'd be doing it over and over. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting different results. And here I am. And again, unbeknownst to my, my own self, I was doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And again, my life just was spiraling out of control. What has spiraled out of control. 
I had no grip on anything. Uh, I lived day to day, uh, hour to hour. And my life was just, um, I was losing it. My, my, uh, my will to live was starting to go away and suicidal thoughts started coming to my brain. And I'd be working at work. I'd go to work sometimes, Tony, and it was so bad that I, you know, maybe I had to sleep for 36 hours or even maybe 48. And I'd close the bathroom door behind me and sleep on the floor of men urinate. You know, my head was on the floor of men urinate. And this is, I mean, here I am a grown man and I'm sleeping on a bathroom floor, putting paper towels down where, where urine is and taking a nap 15, 20 minutes. Uh, and this is where the first sip at 10 years old took me. This is where the first line of cocaine to, at 17 took me. This is where not raising my hand and saying, you know, something, can, can someone help me? My life is out of control. This is where it led me. And this is where not having any kind of um, direction in life because of my alcoholism and addiction took me where if I just had the courage to just raise my hand, and I knew what I was doing was out of control at this part of my life when I became a man instead of a boy. Um, I knew it was wrong and I wanted to stop so badly, but I just, those talents were embedded in me and I couldn't, I couldn't stop the drink and the drug are the most important things to me. Um, so that's, that's to answer your question. I, I became a functioning alcoholic and a functioning addict. I made a lot of money and in, in, in the business that I was in the car business, uh, and again, I've been removed from that business for over almost 17 years now. Uh, all the car business is, is legalized thievery. And that's what I played my part in. And in order to uh, keep my addictions rolling, I would have to legally steal from people by selling them things they didn't need at a cost that was exorbitant, that was above above the suggested retail price. And there was just so much manipulation going on in that car business. And I would feed my addictions on that. And, you know, I would, I would be rewarded with a high five or a pat on the back or an attaboy saying, Hey, you know, you just took Mrs. Jones downtown. You made $10,000 off a great job. When in reality, again, being removed from that business, it was, it was awful. And again, that's where my addictions took me to a, being a legalized thief. Um, so to answer your question, I, I made a lot of money and I spent a lot of money on that. And, um, that's the answer to my question. I didn't mean to go on about it, but. That's where I, that's where that's yeah. probably made my money. So when you met your dealer each day, what kind of cash did you have to pay for? Some people would like to know how, how much does this cocaine actually cost on a daily basis like that? Well, it, for me, it started off for about $80 and then like a hundred dollars. It would be three grams. And then, you know, that'll last me a couple hours. Um, you know, I would do a lot of cocaine in the beginning because I wanted to get high so badly. I would do what's called an eight ball, which is three and a half grams of cocaine in two lines. And that would set me off for the, for the, for the day. And then I have to get more. So to answer your question, how much money would it spend? I, I would spend, it could be a hundred, could be 500, uh, whatever the day brought, well, how much I did. And it was never really any set. So I'm going to say anywhere between, I'd say an average of about two fifty to $300 a day. Probably, I'm going to say five or six days a week. So, so as a, as a salesman point of view, you're you're, you're saying you just overcharge for everything to make extra money on every deal. That's kind of how you were able to do such a thing, because the right. the average well, car salesman doesn't normally make that much. You must have been awfully good at what you did. Well, what I did, Tony, I did the finance office, and the finance office does financing for people. They sell them extended warranties, alarms, uh, all sorts of insurances and things like that. Um, I, I hate to say I was good at my job. I really do because it's, it's thievery. Uh, but I, I made, I, let's put it this way. I manipulated a lot of people to spend money they did not have to spend. Uh, and I am, I, I, I've forgiven myself a long time ago, but it still haunts me to the, a little bit to this day that I've done that to people. But and I hate to blame it on alcoholism and addiction. But if I if I'm I'm the person now, I've been clean for almost about 16 and a half years. I would never do that to anybody. I wouldn't even I would I would guard people's finances now. Like it, it, you know, if, if they finance the car with our, with the dealership, I would charge them seven percent or eight percent or whatever I could charge them, and we would buy the money for three percent. So I'd make five percent profit, which could be ten five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars depending on the the size of the loan. 
you know, I would sell a $300 warranty, extended warranty for two, three thousand dollars uh, and I would get with everything. I'd get 15 percent. I get 15 percent of every every dollar of profit that I brought to that dealership. And it wasn't right, Tony. It wasn't. But you know what? Again, I, I fed my addictions. I fed my alcoholism. I, you know, I, I was feeding my I, I fed my family with that money. I stole from my family with that money, doing drugs and alcohol. And, um, you know, all, all I can say is I'm, I'm very blessed it's over today. Okay, so um, were you married during this time? I got married in the year 2000. So, yes, I was married. I got married in the year 2000. Um, and, yeah, I got married in 2000 and when I quit. So I was married for just about six years while while I was active out there using, drinking, and drugging. Yeah, yeah. Was uh, your wife dated. aware? No, no. We when I When I say we... I utilize the word we as alcoholics and addicts. Um, We are the biggest manipulators in the world and um, we manipulate everyone. So no, she didn't, she wasn't aware. She's a, she's a, uh, she's an attorney. Uh, She she graduated out of her high school, number 10, uh, graduated out of her law school, number nine, uh, very intelligent book wise. uh, And I'm a street person. I'm a very street wise person. And I knew how to manipulate her. I knew what to hide, what not to hide. I knew when to hide it, when not to hide it. I knew to give her some, a piece of something and then take it away and just to, to, to hide myself, to hide my, my addictions, my alcoholism, my insecurity, all that stuff. I hit it very, very well. And, you know, in the car business, Tony, you work from, from eight to eight, 12 hours. Uh, and the people I worked with, you know, if I, got, if I started using cocaine at 12, I'd be there from 12 to eight. And I would just hide, I would hide, I would go to great lengths to hide my, my addictions um, because I wouldn't want anybody to know. And in, in high, again, in hindsight, I wish they all knew. I wish I told everyone, but unfortunately I did not. And so to answer your question, she did not know at all. No one knew, nobody. So on November, except for the people who, uh, who I wanted to know that I wanted to do the drugs with, that I would manipulate into paying for the drugs and all these, all these themes and going on that the only people who knew were the people that I would do it with at the dealership. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of conniving to keep the thing going. So yeah. So now on November 3rd, when you were uh, really depressed and ready to bail in life, did she have, did, was she any part of her involved with that or did you still even hide it then? Well, it's a good, it's a great question. Uh, in 2001, um, I came home one night and, you know, we bought a home in 2000 in May of 2000. Um, I'm sorry. We bought a home in January of 2000. Uh, we got married in May of 2000. She didn't live in the home from January to May. Uh, she didn't want to live with any, you know, with a, with a guy until she was married. Um, so I'm going to say, a year later in 2001, I came home from going out with my friends and we we're doing drinking at a bar, doing drugs all night long. I came home around midnight and she was sitting on the chair at midnight. I put the light on and, and it was very scary to see her there. And she, all she said to me, she says, Rich, I want to go home. And I, what do you mean this is your home? She says, no, this isn't my home. You're out all the time. We're married. You're never home. You're always out. You come home drunk every, I mean, she knew about the drinking a little bit, but not to the extent that I was hiding it. Um, and she says, you're out all the time. And so, you know what I had to do, Tony, I had to become better, better at that. And I couldn't go out that much, but I would, I would drink at the house. So one night it was back in late 2001, you know, she, that's when the cell phone bills were, you know, a dollar a minute or 75 cents a minute. And my, um, my phone bill was, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred dollars And she goes, who are you calling? And, and I was high at the time. And I said, well, don't worry about it. I'll take a look at you. No, no, no. Who are you calling? And so she went on my phone bill and she saw this one phone number every single day. Um, you know, is it 12 o'clock, 1230, 1235, 1245, uh, you know, and it would be my dealer. And I would call him at 12, 1230 and say, hey, listen, meet me here. 
and I'd go to that place, Tony. I'd sit in my car and wait, and he wouldn't show up. I'd call him again. Hey, yep, I'd be right there, and he wouldn't show up. I'd call him again and again and again and again, and all these fees kept racking up on my cell phone bill. So she saw the one number. She says, who is that? And I lied to her because I'm a, I'm a lying-manipulating alcoholic drug addict. And I said, well, he's a car guy, and, and, and I'm shop. He, he buys cars from our dealership, um, and, you know, I have to get prices on cars. And then she saw... She saw the same number at one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. And she says, well, what are you doing at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning? And again, I'm out of cocaine. So I want to call my dealer at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning and get more. So now I knew she had me a little bit. And I said, you know, I, I, I want to be honest with you. I can't do this anymore. I can't lie to you anymore. I think I'm an alcoholic. Uh, and he's, he's, he's helping me. This guy's the guy I'm calling is helping me. When in reality, Tony, he's my drug dealer. And I just want to give her a piece to get her off my back a little bit. And again, it's all, it's all about manipulation. And what I did is I, and I told her that, and she says, well, you know something, all you have to do, Rich, is tell me, all you have to do is tell me the truth. And I, and, and, and she asked me a question point blank as, as she says, all you have to do is tell me the truth and I'll help you. And, and here I am lying to her. Again, not proud of it, but again, we don't want to be discovered, Tony. We don't want to be, we don't, no, we don't want people to know who we are, we're using and drinking and all the stuff. And uh, she says to me, you know, I'll help you. I'll definitely help you. But I, I just need to know, are you, are you using drugs? And I look at her right in the eye and I said, you know something? And again, here comes the master manipulation. I said, you know, I just told you this, the, the biggest secret of my life. And I cannot believe you're asking me if I'm using drugs, how, how can you do that to me? And I'm, I'm manipulating her because that's my problem. I'm using drugs every day. And uh, she says, you know something, I'm sorry. I should never have asked that. And I go, you're right. You shouldn't have. And, and again, that's, that's the lying mentality of an addict, Tony, the manipulation to, to make them, to gaslight them, to make them feel like they're doing something wrong when in reality, they're absolutely right. Um, so the next day, Tony, maybe two or three days later, I should say, we threw away all the alcohol in the house. And um, she calls me that day. And I was off that day from work. And she says, um, she says, how you doing? I said, I'm, I'm doing really well. And she says, well, how are you feeling? I said, I'm doing really good. I feel really great. She's okay. I'll talk to you later. The next thing you know, Tony, she's home. She came home and she, she said to me, she says, uh, I said, what are you doing home? And she says, well, it sounds like you were going to drink. And, you know, Tony, that, this is back in 2001. I felt so awful about life, and I was ready to give it all up. And I said, you know something? I need you to sit down. I need you to tell you the absolute truth. And I started to cry. I started to hyperventilate, crying my eyes out. She said, what's wrong? I said, listen, it's really not the alcohol that's causing the problem. It's, it, you were right. I'm using drugs every single day. I'm using cocaine every single day, and I can't stop. And she said to me, she says, you know, you should have told me when I asked you. And I said, you know, you're right. I should have. And I didn't. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm a coward. And I, all these things were coming out of me, Tony, that never came out of me in 28, 24 years of time or 23 years of time, whatever the time was. And I said, you know, I, I, you're right. I should have told you the truth. And she goes, you know, I'm going to help you. But I'm going to tell you right now, I'll, I'll definitely help you. But I'm going to tell you, if I see you drinking and drugging one more time, we're done. And I said, okay. And uh, so that was in 2001, Tony. And you know what's what's unbelievable? I went, I went two weeks without a. Are you there, Tony? Can you hear me? I'm here. Yep. Okay. So I went, I, I went, you know, one day, two days, three days, because I'm scared of losing my home. I'm scared of losing my wife and all the stuff. Back in 2001, I went seven days. I feel great. I felt really, really good. Ten days go by. I'm feeling dynamite. My complexion's coming back. I'm putting on a little weight because I was, I was pretty thin because of all the, I wasn't eating. I was doing drugs. And then 14 days go by and I said to myself, you know something? I can handle this now. I, I got, I got this. I can definitely have a drink now. And, um, I went out and, you know, in, in not fearing losing my home or my wife, not fearing that at all. I went out and had a drink. And then unfortunately with that alcoholism, uh, one is too many and 20 is not enough. One is too many because once you have that one, that that feeling of more, the disease of more, that compulsion to have more, it just turned on. And then seven to ten drinks later, and then I call my dealer, and, and I get and I and I and I get drunk and I get high. 
Well, so that, of course, your wife could still be checking your phone bills. Yeah. So I was probably, again, sober 14 days and I felt great. And and then I went out that night and I used again. I I drank and I drugged and I I came home that night and I had to be a better hider. I had to be a better manipulator because here I am risking my my house, my brand new home that I bought. I'm risking my marriage and, and I have to become a better manipulator. Um, and you know, I told her all the telltale signs of, of what to look for if I'm out there drinking and using, and I had to, again, become a better, better manipulator. Whereas like one of the signs, Tony, is if I'm doing cocaine, I don't eat anything. And at night, like, you know, she, we had a baby in, in 2004 and, um, she would go up and put the baby to bed and I'd tell her right back, I'd go to like Burger King and buy food and then bring the empty, throw the food out the window. This is a full-time job manipulating, you know, I throw the food out the window and just bring the empty bag home to make it look like I was eating, or I would make a sandwich and, and flush it down the toilet to make it, make it look like I ate it and all these awful things to manipulate. And it was a really a full-time job. And because again, I didn't want to lose, but I couldn't stop that. I couldn't stop. I couldn't, once I had that drink and drug in me again, I couldn't stop in my life was spiraling down the, down the, that tour, that, um, that spiral again, it was awful. So that's, that's my wife didn't really know, but until I told her, and then I kept going on after 14 days, it was awful. Wow. So, so getting up to 2006, um, when we're getting close to November 3rd, was that when you were kind of hitting bottom? Yeah, in November, for the next couple of years, Tony, again, like I said, I, I hit it very well. I wouldn't go out, but I would uh, would drink before I came home. I would get high all day with cocaine. And, um, you know, one of the signs of uh, that you're doing cocaine is your heart. You could be sitting in a room and your heart is racing as if you just did a 5,000-yard sprint. Your heart really elevates, and it's probably 80, 90, 120, 140 beats a minute, but just by sitting there. Uh, and, you know, if, if she put her hand on my chest, if I was sleeping, I would push it off because she would know. Uh, but going from my like 2004 to 2006 was probably the worst couple of years of my life. My daughter was two, up, up to two and a half years old in, in November 2003. I'm sorry, 2004. Excuse me. 2006. She was down two and a half years old. Um, and I wasn't a good dad. I was not a good dad at all. Uh, I was physically there, Tony. I wasn't mentally or spiritually there. Um, you know, I, I would put her in front of the TV to watch TV while I took a nap right next to her. I didn't play with her. I should have done all that stuff. But unfortunately, and sometimes I did, but most of the time my day was just like was awful. I need sleep or I want to get high. And it was more important to me. It's more unfortunately, addiction and alcoholism is more important than your own children when you're when you're in, in consumed with this disease. In November 3rd, 2006, I was high. Uh, as usual, uh, it was at nighttime. It was probably two in the morning. Um, I would be laying in my bed, sweating. Um, and, you know, paranoia set in. Paranoia has probably been for the last couple of years, Tony, where I thought people were in my house. I thought they were in my closet under my bed and I would carry a butcher knife around my home. <clears throat> um and I'd be lying in the clicker. I mean, I'd be lying in the bed with a clicker in one hand and the knife in the other hand while my wife was, my wife was right next to me. And she, again, she knew nothing. She would be sleeping and I'd be faking I was sleeping, but I'd be wide awake and I'd have the clicker in my hand because I was going to throw it at the person who walked through my bedroom door at three in the morning and then stab him with the knife. And this is where, how sick I was. This is how sick I've become. This is where the first drink took me. This is where the first line of cocaine took me to this position right now where I'm actually laying in bed with, with a knife in my hand. Um, and I did that many, many nights. I would walk around my house with a knife in my hand, opening closets, uh, looking on the beds. Uh, it, was, it was really, really bad. And that night, it was November 3rd, I'm laying in the bed and I just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, my daughter, again, was two and a half years old and my wife knew nothing about me. And um, I, I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I don't wanna live anymore. My, the the world, my wife, my daughter, my family, uh, people in general will will be better off without Rich Barnes. They'll be much better off without, without me because I am nothing. Um, I didn't make anything of myself here. I am 38 years old and I just, I, I don't want to live anymore. And uh, I had the knife in my hand and 
I walked into my daughter's room and she was sleeping. It was probably two thirty, three o'clock in the morning and she was sleeping. And, you know, I, I look around her room and there was stuffed animals everywhere. Her, her, her name is on the, um, on her wall and she's, um, she's uh, tucked under her covers. And here I am, the monster walks in. I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing. I've been a wolf in sheep's clothing for so long. Um, and I reached down for the, with this, love and admiration of this little girl in her bed in her little day bed. And I give her a kiss on the cheek and, and then on her forehead, because I was never going to see her again. And she looked, she woke up and looked up at me and her, her eyes were blinking and she's trying to, trying to gain that composure of vision. Um, and she smiled and, and she went back to sleep. And that was the last time she was ever going to, in my, in my mindset at, at the time was the very last time that she was ever going to see her daddy. And she would not even remember it. And then I walked into my bedroom and my wife was there and she was sleeping and she sleeps pretty soundly. And she, uh, I, I walked over to her and gave her a kiss goodnight, you know, kiss goodbye. And um, I went over the other side of my bed and, and I sat there and I put the knife on my wrist and I said, and I, I'm not a godly person. I never really, I mean, I believe in God wholeheartedly, but I don't read the Bible or anything like that. I'm not really that into, I mean, I'm into God, but not, not as much as I should be. Uh, and I didn't have, and I had no relationship with him. The only time I'd ever say God or Jesus Christ when I stub my toe or I'm angry and stuff like that. But I, you know, I reached out to him that day and I said, God, please, uh, this is my mindset, Tony. I said, please take me away from this wretched life that I have no one to blame for, but myself, because I can't do this anymore. I said, please, please have my daughter find a wonderful daddy that will love her unconditionally as, as his own and take care of her and watch her grow up and walk her down the aisle. And, and, and I said, and please have my wife find a, a great husband because I'm neither a good daddy or a good husband or take me, take me away quickly. And I'm sitting there and I said, and I said to myself, or help me or please help me. And um, the next morning I woke up. And uh, there was a little blood on my wrist because I pushed down. I didn't do anything big, but the, the, the knife was on the ground and um, I was still alive. And, you know, I went that day without alcohol or drugs. And I went the second day without alcohol and drugs. And the third day, the fourth day. And then all of a sudden I opened up my, my mouth to a friend of mine whose father was a, a recovering alcoholic. I think at the time, maybe 25 years and, I said, listen, can I talk to your dad? I need your dad's phone number. He said, yeah, here you go. And the, my friend was sober two years at the time. So I talked to his father and he, he set me on my path and my journey of recovery. And I started going to AA meetings and all these wonderful things, started, these doorways started opening up. And so did I. I, I. I started opening up this chest, which had nothing in it. And I believe I wanted to open it up to fill things, to fill it with beautiful things that I, I missed for so long. Um, and yeah, and then, you know, it's funny, Tony, I, um, I, I became sober November 3rd, 2006, after 18 years in that wretched car business where I thought wearing a suit, having a free car and free gas and having $3,000 in my pocket was the, was the cat's meow with my status was so good. And after 18 years of doing that, I said, you know, something, I've had enough of this. I quit. And I gave my two week notice. And I had nothing, nothing, um, no job in sight. And, and something came out and it was the mortgage business. And, and um, God brought me to a, a, a company 50 miles away from where my element was, where the drugs were, where the alcohol, where my life revolved around 50 miles away to a mortgage company, to a gentleman who was a Christian, uh, who's on the, who owns the company. It's a very large company. Uh, and come to find out he was a recovering cocaine addict. And I started putting all these things together, all these tornadoes together and of, of wonderful things. And I, I come to find out that, you know, my, my prayer was answered. Um, when I asked for help, I believe God helped me. And he brought me here where I am sitting right now, 16 and a half years later after that one simple prayer. And uh, my life has come full circle. And I, uh, in 2008, I had a second daughter and, um, you know, I, my life is going really, really beautifully. And, I reach out to anybody who needs help or wants help or just put anything out there that they can read that might inspire them to to walk the path that I've so graciously found and, and has been afforded to me. 
Um, you know, um, um, arrogance has been, been replaced with humility, hatred with love, um, you know, pride and ego with just, with just wonderful, beautiful things about life. It's just, it's a really wonderful journey I'm on right now. And I, and I, I love waking up in the morning instead of coming to, I love putting my head on the pillow and thanking God for another day of life and, and pray that I wake up the next morning because I never want to, I never want to miss a day of life. You know, I never want to miss a day of life today where 16 and a half years ago, I, I didn't want to live any longer. Wow. So your, your daughters are now in their twenties, right? Uh, no, my, my oldest daughter will be 19 years old uh, in about two weeks. And my other daughter is going to be 15 years old in, in July. Okay, so you haven't walked anybody down the aisle yet? No, not yet. So, <laughs> not yet. We'll we'll hold that off for a little bit, you know. I, I pray and, I uh, do. I pray I do. I pray I'm alive to do that. Yeah, I feel very comfortable that you will be as long as you're yeah. careful when you cross the street. Uh, so the, and then you had you've wanted to go out and speak to schools and younger people. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, I can assume the message, but what did you, what do you actually say to them? Do you go through what you just went through with us? Um, or- yeah, but I also wanted to inspire them. I, I, I tell them about my story, Tony, uh, but I want to inspire them to, to realize how precious life is and how wonderful it is. And the choices and decisions they make now are going to either be consequential or, or uh, doorways for them you know, open doorways for them. Um, because, you know, when you're a young child and I say young child, 18, 17, 16, even younger, uh, what they're going to do now is going to be the driving force, I think behind their lives and the choices they make and the decisions they make are going to, are going to be, um, their lives. And I just tell them, you know, I go back to them and I tell them there's one thing that they have that I'll never have again. And it's their youth. And they can make make their lives the, the best that they've ever. I mean, they can they can set up their lives right now for such wonderful things to happen, or they can they can do what I did and wreck it. And I also I I, I beg them if they if they drank a drug, which a lot of them tried things, I tell them you know don't do it anymore. And if you haven't tried, good, don't ever try it because you know look where it led me. And one out of one out of four people, Tony, I believe it's one out of four people or kids who try alcohol or drugs become an alcoholic or an addict. I believe that's the, that's the statistic. And it's, it's one out of four people, excuse me, one out of four people. I mean, you can be sitting in, sitting in an assembly and look two people to your left and two people to your right. And one, and, you know, besides yourself, one of them are going to be an alcoholic or an addict. It's just, it's scary. Especially with the drugs that are out there right now. It's only that fentanyl. Fentanyl is in, they're put, drug dealers are putting fentanyl in everything and they're putting it in cocaine. And, you know, I lost a friend to 55, 58 year old friend two years ago because she did cocaine and she had it had fentanyl in it. So it's very scary. Oh, yeah. That's what's cranking up the the numbers now, because um, before we had people who got addicted from prescription drugs like opioids and that sort of thing. And now even normal, you know, when I say normal people who really aren't addicted to do recreational drugs turn out. They get cocaine. I mean, they get uh, fentanyl and cocaine, and this is the end result: yeah. is you could be dead that night. Doesn't That's take right. any long-term use. It just takes one bad use. Right. Yet, I mean, opiates. Opiates are. See, I guess I'm. I, I could say I'm lucky, but I really wasn't. But I'm lucky in, in in respect to cocaine was is a mentally addicting drug. Opioids, opiates, they're all physically addicting. And, you know, when these athletes or whoever breaks or even get a car accident, they take, uh, you know, Percocets or anything like that. Their body depends on it. And that's what happens in their body. And then when they when they come off of it, um, their body still craves it. They get violently sick. And I guess there's new laws out now. I believe there's only a seven day script you can get for opiates and then you'd be reevaluated after that. I mean, you know, years ago, a friend of mine, his daughter broke her arm. No, I'm sorry. She, she sprained her shoulder or something. And the doctor wanted to give her 30 days of Percocets. And I'm like, you can't take that. You, you know, it's, that's going to be, that could be dangerous to a child, you know, and she was Absolutely. only 12 years old. Yeah. <clears throat> 12 years old, giving her Percocets. Yeah. That's, that's sinful. That's to right. be honest. That really yeah. is because um, 
she can she can endure people can endure a little pain every now and then it's right. you know those drugs were really meant for people that have terminal cancer and um, <clears throat> they're in constant pain and they're not going to make it anyway so that's a different that's story right. you know yeah. you, I mean you, oxycontin I mean those things they don't I don't think they make the pill form anymore they get the gel uh, because people were crushing them and snorting them and so forth but they're they're so they're highly addicting they're physically addicting and then when they run out of money Tony what they do is they go to heroin. You know, and they they look to heroin. It's just it's so progressive. It's like, you know, from a normal person to take a Percocet because they broke their arm. Literally, all of a sudden they're going to be used. They have the possibility of, of using heroin because they're out of money because they're so addicted to it. It's, it's terrible. I've, I've known many people who have done that. Well, this probably be a good time that in, uh, I have a bill at the house in the house in Massachusetts. We call it the right to know act where if a child that's 18 years or younger, the parent has to be notified that the prescription that the doctor's given them is a, is a habitual narcotic that could be highly addictive. And yeah. the parent has to sign off on it. And we found in other states where we passed this law, um, the amount of addiction problems with teenagers has gone down when it comes to the opioids. Because That's once parents, parent, I, once parents know, you know, I was a naive parent. I didn't know what an opioid was when I filled a prescription for my son. I had no yeah. idea, yeah. you know. And that's <clears throat> that was the beginning of the end. Right. You know, he he got a thirty day prescription from a football injury. Yeah. And, and that was the end, and he never got over it. So yeah, sorry that's about what that. Happens. Yeah, thank you. That's what happens. You know, it's like. Uh, just keeps going. And now you, your wife, she knew all about the November 3rd incident because you're telling the uh, world now. So, Yeah, I, I tell the world now. So yeah, I'm going through a divorce, which is very amicable. Um, and we don't need to talk about that, but I'm going through a divorce and we're still friends and stuff like that. But um, everybody knows now. I, I hid my addictions and my alcoholism, Tony, for so, for so long. I, I will never hide my recovery. I don't care what people say. Uh, what, if there's a, if, if, I, if I give a talk for 10,000 people, Tony, and, nine, and I tell my story, 9,999 people say, this guy's crazy. But the one person in the back of the audience says, yeah, I can get, I, I definitely understand that. That's what I'm shooting for the one person. Well, I can tell you, if you're speaking in front of 10,000, there's going to be a lot more than one person in the yeah, room yeah. that's going to be, yeah. be able to relate, you know? Yeah. One thing about cocaine that I've, know from people that I know that were on it, they would, when they crashed, they would actually sleep for like two or three days. Yeah. You, you were able to get over that. So when you were working in the car business, you must have showed up every day. Yeah. So. I never, I mean, I never slept for two or three days. You know, I, I was up for two or three days, but I never slept for two or three days. So you could recover on one night's sleep to go back to work. Well, I probably got literally maybe four hours of sleep a night. And it was awful sleep. It wasn't good sleep because when I was coming down off the cocaine, I would I would take Benadryls or NyQuil because cocaine lifts you up. It, it makes you high. And I want to bring I want to come down. So I would take like the NyQuil that puts you to sleep, the Benadryls, anything to put to bring me down, because during during that that. When you're coming down, Tony, that's when you start. That's when the bad thoughts start coming around. How bad you hate yourself and you want to die and you hate life and all those things. Crashing is truly like like crashing. It's awful. Wow, that's um. And now you have a, you're still in the mortgage business with, then yep. doing the yeah. Still, still here, man. I mean, yes, I, I I quit. I I got sober November third, two thousand six. I was in the business for eighteen years. I left the car business probably November, two weeks later, two weeks later. And I started here. I'm still here right now. I, I started here a month later. So I started here in December, December of 2006. Whole wow. new business, whole new business. I knew nothing about. Well, you you had an idea about how, how finances work though. So yeah, total, total different animal though. Total different. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's regulated by the government. It's just a really, it's a wonderful business, Tony. And, and I'm writing a book. It's called from stealing to healing because I, I, I put people in homes. I make them happy. I refinance the homes and, 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 and pay off all their bills and make them happy. You know, and it's, and I have more in the first year of doing the mortgage business, I've had more people say, thank you so much for helping me than I did in the 18 years in the car business. I, I get it. 
So I think, uh, Rich, you are definitely uh, a sign of hope for anybody because you seem to have been, you were in a, you were in a, would you say a working alcoholic? And yeah. Your life, your life really was, was really, you were a full blown addict in two ways, yeah. you know, with yeah. cocaine and with alcohol. And <clears throat> looking, I'm looking at you now. You've survived and you've got a good job and and um, you're able to face people directly and you're not lying to people. And no, I'm sure it's a whole wonderful feeling now that you have different kind. You know, now you have a different kind of high. You're high you, know what I am now, you know what I am now, Tony? I'm whole. I'm whole. Yeah. And that's where you had really, really weren't whole since you were 10 years old. Right. You know, I told you when I when I became clean and started talking about it, I wanted to open up my my chest and because there was nothing there. And it's always going to be open because I always want to fill it with love, kindness, compassion, help, benevolence, ethical values, integrity, love, peace, joy, all those wonderful things that I never had for 28 years. And now I just want I want to embrace them every single day and share them and share them because it's it's about it's about the others. It's about being others centered, not self-centered. It's about being selfless instead of selfish. Well, I want to thank you very much for sharing your story with us today. Of course. It's and, my pleasure. I appreciate you the opportunity to share. And, um, you know, if, I don't know if you could put my phone number on there, whatever you need to do. You can always put my phone number on there, Tony. If anybody wants to call me, they can call me anytime they want. Um, we will do that. It'll be on our website, which is WMEXBoston.com, which okay. is where you go to the website. It'll be up there in a few days. Um, and so anybody that would like to reach out to Rich that maybe has a similar uh, experience going on and you want some advice or uh, an ear that can probably help you. Uh, you've sponsored other people since you've been uh, sober. I've, helped, I've, I've brought people along. I, I don't really don't sponsor anybody, Tony. I'll tell you why, because I don't think it's fair to them because I'm so all over the place. I don't have the time to sit down with people. Uh, and go over, like, read the book, the big book with them. I don't have time to um, just get involved with them on a personal level because I'm always all over the place. But I have plenty of people that I can I can send them to that will sponsor them. But I'll always help someone and, and, and talk to anybody that, that reaches out to me, no problem at all. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you very much again, Rich. This is Rich Bonds, and this is Tony LaGreca. And this is the courage to hope. And you've just heard a story of a lot of hope and courage. And look at where he is today. As he said, now he's whole. That's a good philosophy to leave us on. And thank you very much, Rich. Thanks for the opportunity, sir. Have a great day. Bye.